The investigation was marred by a combination of professional incompetence, by institutional racism. Black people are both over-policed and under-protected. Institutional racism at that has been a perennial open sore for the Met for decades. The Metropolitan Police's diversity and inclusion strategy claims it is determined to eliminate racism and discrimination. But the force was branded institutionally racist, and not for the first time, in an official report this spring. Recently, a Met firearms officer has been referred to prosecutors on a potential murder charge for shooting dead black Londoner Chris Carver last September. So, what does racism have to do with our 21st century economic system? How should we understand institutions who uphold racism while claiming to value diversity and inclusion? And what does it mean to truly be anti-racist? I think it's very clear that we have a serious problem around racism in our society. And what makes it endemic is that it's not simply the realities of a few people making racist remarks. It's the reality that within our institutions, built into the structures of our society, is racism that exists and penetrates in lots of different ways. Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, what is anti-racism without anti-capitalism? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So I'm really pleased to be joined down the line on this hot, hot day by Arun Kundanani, author of What is Anti-Racism and Why It Means Anti-Capitalism. Hi, Arun. Hi, Aisha. Thanks so much for for being with us. I hope it's a little bit cooler where you are. No, it's just as hot. Oh, gosh. Okay. (laughs) Let's make this as painless as possible. Um, So you begin your book by talking about the vital protest for Black Lives, which took place after the murder of George Floyd in the US in 2020 and spread around the world. So you say that this demonstrates two different ways of looking at racism, one with a kind of liberal lens and then one with a more kind of radical structural lens. So could you just explain what you mean by that and and how it links to what we saw in 2020. You know, I thought it was really striking in 2020 with, you know, in the United States, uh, here where I'm based, we had, you know, something like 15 million people on the streets that summer. We had opinion polling that found that a majority of Americans actually believed that setting fire to that police precinct in Minneapolis was fully or partially justified as a method of anti-racist protest. It was a, a really interesting kind of radical moment. And, you know, obviously people were coming on those protests for lots of different reasons, but the kind of center of gravity of it in terms of people's views was really, you know, the slogans like defund the police, the slogans to abolish ICE, the um, immigration and customs enforcement, the border police. And it was about saying, you know, there are these institutional forces, these large structures in US society that are bound up with racism and we need to dismantle them. But then in the aftermath um, of that, there was another kind of way of thinking about racism that you saw coming out of the White House, that you saw coming out of you know major corporations, that you saw in a lot of the stuff that was happening in um, kind of university management and human resources departments in, in large organizations that talked about um, language diversity, language of inclusion, and kind of left behind the questions of structural racism, really, even though they, you know, they would always use the term structural racism or systemic racism and and describe what they were doing in those terms, what they were really doing in practice was advocating a kind of anti-racism that focused on 
changing individual attitudes, tackling unconscious biases, celebrating diversity, thinking about how to counter the far right, but kind of leaving out of the picture the question of these, you know, institutions like police departments, like bordering, like the war machine, and like mass incarceration, as if if we just change enough individual mindsets and tackle enough individual unconscious biases, somehow those things will end up being dealt with as well, which I don't think there's any evidence for that. And so what I'm arguing in the book is that really, you know, when we talk about anti-racism, we, we usually don't distinguish between two very different traditions of anti-racism that run through the 20th century up to the present day, a liberal tradition and a radical tradition. The liberal tradition that focuses on individual attitudes, on unconscious biases, on celebrating and understanding cultural diversity that often sees racism as a very much a kind of matter of extremist mindsets. On the other hand, a radical anti-racism that basically understands racism as a matter of how are resources distributed between different racial groups and how does state violence operate to uphold those inequalities? I guess the first thing that came up for me then is, is the kind of first version that you described a kind of more liberal one. Is that anti-racism? To me, it, it kind of seems like that's not anti-racism and I don't know that that's what they call it either. I mean, yeah, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Because I feel like at least in the spaces that I've organized in in over the past decade or so, there's been a kind of real intentionality behind people who describe themselves as anti-racist versus, you know, the more liberal types who understand their work as part of, as you laid out there, a kind of initiative to, you know, towards multiculturalism, towards diversity, towards inclusion, but not really against anything. How do you think about that? Part of the answer to that is to, is to think about the history of the word racism itself and the different ways of thinking about that, that different intellectual traditions have mobilized and what anti-racism might mean comes out of of that really. So the word racism itself really gets mobilized in a systematic way from the 1930s. It doesn't really exist before then. And essentially a set of liberal thinkers, one is Magnus Hirschfeld, who is a gay rights pioneer, German Jew, and who's trying to understand the rise of Nazism in the 1930s. is another is Ruth Benedict, the American anthropologist, who's also trying to un- understand the rise of racism in the 1930s. And, and figures like this are essentially interested in, in what's happening in, in Germany in the 1930s. And their argument is that you have a society where there's widespread racial prejudices, individuals with beliefs of prejudice. And in that kind of context, it becomes possible for extremist politicians to kind of mobilize race hatred in order to overthrow liberal democracy. And that's their analysis of what happens with the rise of Hitler. And so in order to counter that, they do talk about anti-racism as a kind of political project that involves liberal elites who they see as less vulnerable to prejudice. Liberal elites kind of educating the masses to get rid of their prejudices so that liberal democracy can be protected from this kind of extremist politics, right? And so they do understand what they're doing very clearly as anti-racism. They, they use the word racism to describe this set of beliefs that they claim to identify. So I think there's a, there's a line that runs right through from those people thinking about the rise of Nazism in Europe in the 1930s in, in that way, right through to the present day with, you know, the kind of diversity training stuff, the idea that, you know, if we just get the representation right in Hollywood movies, then then those kinds of representation will educate us out of our unconscious biases and so on. 
the kind of Robin D'Angelo approach to anti-racism that focuses on the sort of defensiveness that, that white people have to be confronted with prejudices consciously or unconsciously held and so on, right? There's a straight line there to those kinds of very widely promoted practices. And then on the other hand, you know, I think there's a there's clearly another tradition. And again, we're thinking about the word racism, we can trace it. You know, people like uh, C.L.R. James, the Trinidadian writer, is also using the word racism in the 1930s. And like many others who are trying to understand the project of European colonialism and how to overcome it and involved in those kind of anti-colonial struggles, he's thinking about racism as a question of what are the kind of everyday sets of unwritten um, social norms and rules and policies and institutional practices that enable economic resources to be distributed in ways that lead to massive racial disparities, right? And those could be within a particular country or internationally. And so the radical tradition that tends to, to think about racism as a problem of unequal economic outcomes and then thinks about the forms of state violence that are necessary to uphold those unequal outcomes. So I think when we think about the context of Britain today, I don't think we can say that there's a neat line between people who call themselves anti-racist in one sense and people who call themselves anti-racist in another. I think the term anti-racism is one that's embraced by people in that liberal tradition as much as on the radical side. Um, there are people who would clearly describe themselves as anti-racist in Britain and embrace this very liberal idea of it. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think, you know, clearly in the way that you've described the genealogy of the terms, it makes sense. I guess just the experience that I have, you know, of doing this work in practice, it often, it feels at least that there is a sense of people kind of going to great pains to try to demarcate their efforts as anti-racist, as distinct from the more liberal kind of diversity and inclusion initiatives. But I'm sure if you were to then go and ask the people on the more liberal side, are you anti-racist? They would, of course, say yes. A question that I have around that is just, is your argument then that the more liberal approach is, I guess, at best unhelpful and at worst dangerous and shouldn't exist? Or can you see the value in it at times? I think we can credit liberal anti-racism to some extent in actually being part of a transformation that has happened over the last 50 years or so. You know, the picture of how people interact with each other at the level of interpersonal relationships in a country like the United States or the United Kingdom is significantly different at that level from what it would have been like in the 1970s. And so that is progress of sorts. And part of that progress has come about through, through some of these liberal anti-racist methods. The argument about it for today is that kind of methodology, that liberal methodology has done what it can in terms of making that kind of progress. It has no way of cutting into the structural forces that we're up against today. And the big change that's happened since the 1970s is that the kind of problem of individual white people being unable to interact with other people without prejudice, without patronizing, without all the other things that, that we know about, that has declined. But the structural forces have got worse. What's been built up since the 1970s is a huge architecture of borders that weren't as fortified as they were, you know, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, military power, policing powers, imprisonment, and so on. All these things have been massively expanded with all the, the racist consequences that that brings. The kind of inequalities that come around through the sort of abstract forces of, of the market, which don't seem like they're to do with racism, because 
we have this kind of mythology of the market as operating in this kind of race neutral way. But those are also far more powerful than they were in the period before the 1970s. And so we have a situation where we have structural racism that doesn't require the majority of people in a country like Britain or the United States to actually hold racist beliefs to uphold that system anymore. They may well have worked on their prejudices, but the system carries on anyway. And that's why now a liberal anti-racism doesn't reduce racism anymore. What it does is it actually provides a kind of legitimating ideology for these structural forces because it enables a language of diversity and a language of individualism, actually, that is completely compatible with those structural forces. It doesn't trouble structural racism at all for a language of kind of diversity and inclusion to be part of what is accepted and promoted in the mainstream of society. I can't disagree with what you're saying around the fact that it becomes a tool to actually further the structural oppression which underlies and encompasses the very systems and institutions and society itself in which racism is embedded. My wariness is around I guess, throwing out the baby with the bathwater and saying all kind of anti-racist interventions that might be seen as more on the liberal side. So for example, the kind of Robin D'Angelo work around white people confronting their privilege is de facto useless because we've kind of gone as far as we need to on the interpersonal side. And now we need to focus on the structural. Yeah. I mean, I think if we're going to tackle structural racism, which I think is the central question for us today, we're going to need to build organizational power, right? It's not something that we're going to be able to do unless we have collective power of the kind that can actually pull down social structures and rebuild new social structures, right? So the basic problem is one on that level rather than, you know, like how do I get this other person to have less prejudice? At some point in the context of building our movements, we're going to come up against all of these questions around how do people from different histories of racialization work together to build unity? And so, you know, these questions of interpersonal relationships are going to be there, of course. I think there's a difference between seeing that as something that is being done within movement building towards collective power in the context of understanding that the goal is to dismantle these structures, as opposed to the idea, which I think is actually harmful, the idea that the end result is to change someone else's mind and then somehow magically everything else will fall into place. You know, if you look at Robin D'Angelo's work, that is the way that it comes out, right? She talks about structural racism, but only really as a way to give white people who are engaging with this stuff a kind of way of not feeling too bad about their own individual unconscious biases because they can say, well, in any case, those unconscious biases have been placed in your mind through these structures that you're not responsible for because you're just an individual. So don't feel too bad if you have to confront this. And so it's a way of, of kind of getting over the defensiveness. But beyond that, we don't have any methodology for actually then having worked on that white fragility to actually go forward and then deal with the structures. She doesn't tell us anything about how to do that because actually the project is a liberal anti-racist project. So to the extent that we're putting all of this time and energy into this kind of turning inwards for white people into themselves and kind of heroically confronting their own unconscious biases, I mean, that is a huge distraction, I'm afraid, from the kind of movement building we need. And I do think we need to call it a distraction rather than just something that is harmless, unless it's done in the context of actual collective insurgency against structural forces of racism, then it becomes harmful. 
I think what I'm talking about is I believe that there is a need for deep self-work in collective power building towards anti-racism, which sits within a structural analysis and a broader movement. It's my experience from having done this work over the past decade that if you don't actually have the first piece, you know, that people doing, not just white people, people of all different races and, and walks of life doing that deep self-work as part of the broader work necessarily embedded within a structural analysis as you very clearly articulate, um, it won't work. I don't want people to walk away from this thinking, this isn't interpersonal. It's not about doing any self-work, whether I'm, you know, black or Jewish or white or whatever. This is about us having a shared analysis of a struggle that is so much bigger than me and is structural. And I don't really need to think about myself because that's just not how humans work in my experience. You know, like in my experience of being in movements that have worked at the interpersonal level, they don't work by people turning inwards. They work through understanding a kind of loyalty to each other is the, is the starting point. We are committed to each other's emancipation. And when we start from that assumption, then we end up in situations where sometimes we bump up against each other in ways that bring out the ways we've been socialized, right? And that could be all kinds of things. You know, we're socialized into an individualism that is pervasive and counter to the kinds of collective solidarity we need to build, um, competitiveness, as well as ways we're all racialized and so on. When those things kind of come out in our relationships with each other, if we have a context where we understand that we're in a shared struggle and we have a context in which we understand that we all have the right to highlight the deficiencies in each, each other's behaviors and then work those through together in relationships and then come together having done that work to once again continue our, our struggle. Self-work implies like a kind of individualized, turning inwards, kind of a navel-gazing that I honestly, in my experience, find to be unhelpful in, in building the kind of movements we need. You know, as someone who is definitely 100% aligned with everything you're saying about processes of neoliberalization that individualize us and therefore enable the kind of system of economic extraction that, we're, uh, that we exist within, Self-work is actually the opposite of that. Rather than being a kind of individual thing, it's much more about understanding the ways in which your personal and very unique formation has shaped the things that you believe and the way that you interact with other people on, I guess, a more primal level, on a more kind of somatic level, and therefore using that as a springboard to be a better ally, to be a better, you know, activist, to do better work. Because when people are kind of working from that wound in a way of having not done that kind of more trauma-informed, I guess, aspect of movement building, again, people literally tear each other apart, which is something that I've seen too many times. But we'll take a few steps back. You know, we obviously can't talk about racism and capitalism without exploring the role of colonialism. We've had a bunch of brilliant people on the pod talking about this before, including uh, the brilliant Kojo Karam. So could you tell us a bit more about how, uh, in your understanding, racism, colonialism and capitalism are, are all connected? Colonialism is not over. I mean, take, for example, the question of COVID vaccines. I think this is a good way into to thinking about how capitalism, colonialism, racism work uh, in one particular area today. So COVID vaccines have been the intellectual property of a small number of um, large corporations that have made huge amounts of money from them. That's the kind of capitalist part of it, the ownership of intellectual property. The way that that intellectual property regime has been imposed for the whole world is 
through neo-colonialism. So, you know, the World Trade Organization that was established in the 1990s effectively created a system whereby things like a, a vaccine that, you know, historically have been subject to other kinds of ownership regime. Even in the case of COVID, Oxford University, when it developed its COVID vaccine, was initially going to make it available as a resource for the world that wasn't privately owned, that would have meant that it was affordable to many millions of people that died as a result of not being vaccinated, particularly in 2021. I lost three cousins in India from COVID who weren't vaccinated. They could have been vaccinated. The manufacturing capacity was there in the world through 2020 and 2021. The reason they weren't was vaccinated was because of an intellectual property regime that was created in order for big pharma to make more money. And racism is a part of it, right? Because how is that order upheld? Um, in part, it's upheld by a whole set of ideas about you know, people who are from other parts of the world, their cultures being seen as lacking in a, in a certain kind of ability to function properly in market systems. And that's what's supposed to explain why there are you know, these gross inequalities around the world. The other piece to this, I think, especially at the present time, is a neoliberal world order has a kind of contradiction at the heart of it, which is that most people in the world actually don't want to organize all their relationships through market systems. And the system doesn't enable most people in the world to actually even enter the sort of ideal free market system where you have a form of waged employment, where you give some of your time in return for a wage, and then that money that you earn for your wage, you then used to consume that is just simply not the experience of the majority of people of the world and so neoliberalism is kind of haunted by the fact that it's not able to universalize itself and so it it needs a kind of story and a kind of set of structures or processes to manage what it does with its failure to universalize and that's where racism comes in it provides that story and it provides the methods for managing populations that are surplus to neoliberalism essentially Right, all those people who are never going to be included into a kind of waged work relationship to markets. And that means bordering to keep those people out. That means various kinds of military violence to control those populations in the United States. Uh, that means mass incarceration to kind of warehouse populations that are outside of waged work and so on. And those things are all you know, bound up with racialization. That makes a lot of sense. So... In the book, you write a lot about South Africa and the particular manifestations of, of racial capitalism there. Could you just explain a little bit for listeners uh, the examples that you use? Yeah. So one of the things I do in the book is try and get into how this term racial capitalism emerged in the context of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa in the 1970s. So what you had in that, in that situation is as apartheid was a a system based on white minority rule. You had about 4 million white people in South Africa in the 1970s. They lived in cities. The male white population of workers would typically, you know, have a wife and children that they would support on their income. They would be able to house their family, have a kind of steady employment through their life. When they retire, they would get social security and, and retirement benefits. They'd have health care and their children's growth and education and so on would be provided for. On the other hand, you have 15 million blacks in apartheid South Africa, two-thirds of whom live in rural areas. And their interaction with the apartheid economy is 
is more complicated and more oppressive. So what is happening for them is you have large numbers of them who are temporarily migrating from areas that are called the reserves that, as the name suggests, are modeled on the uh, reservations in the United States for Native Americans. And the idea is that these are these are kind of areas where Africans have been concentrated historically during the colonial process. And so you have people who migrate from the reserves to do waged work, for example, in especially in the gold mines. And what's happening is, is that the wages they're receiving are dramatically low. And that's possible because as well as doing that work in the mines for a wage, they're also being supported through a rural African subsistence economy in the reserves that can also generate a certain amount of what they need to survive. So the wages can be that much lower because there's this, there's this kind of non-capitalist economy that's kind of subsidizing these people's lives. And so that means that you have this kind of way of understanding what apartheid was about in terms of it being a, an architecture for ensuring cheap labor for capitalism, right? So the average per capita income for the white minority is about £1,000 a year in 1971. For blacks, it's around £53, right? Which just shows how, how unequal it was. And that means, of course, that most of most of these people are at risk of starvation. And then, you know, here we're drawing on people who are trying to theorize this, people like Neville Alexander, who was a key person introducing the term racial capitalism and, and spent many years in prison under apartheid, uh, Bernard Magrubane, uh, Harold Wolpe, Martin Nagasik. And these people basically came to understand apartheid in this way as, as a system of racial capitalism that was driven by the need to maintain this cheap labor force through this kind of way that black workers had a partly in, partly out relationship to capitalism. And then all of the kind of violence of apartheid um, in terms of the policing, um, the past laws, the mass displacement to people, all of that was a way to ensure that the subsistence economies in the reserves were able to continue to function just enough that they could provide this kind of subsidy so that the wages could remain low, but not get too productive so that black workers would actually be able to just have their own economy. It needed to be just enough to subsidize, but not enough to enable them not to have to also work in the mines. And so apartheid becomes this system of oppression, essentially, to maintain that arrangement. That's the, the kind of original formulation of an idea of racial capitalism. In other words, an idea of how there is a structural relationship between the interests of capitalists and a, a whole system of state racism, right? And notice that it's not the same argument as a lot of orthodox Marxists have made, which is to say that racism is a kind of ideology to create an artificial division between black workers and white workers. And if only we could see that and overcome that, then the whole working class could unite, you know, understanding their shared interests as workers and, and, and challenge capitalism. It's not saying that because it's saying that there is actually a very structural material difference between how black workers and white workers under apartheid relate to capitalism. And so there isn't an immediate shared interest. There's not a, a set of ideas that need to be swept away so that we can see clearly this shared interest. It's, it's actually that there are divergent interests, at least in the short term. And so the struggle against apartheid is going to need to be a, a kind of black autonomous struggle, according to this analysis, rather than you know, working class struggle, which, of course, makes sense in a context of apartheid. It's hard to imagine apartheid being overthrown by 
white workers uniting with black workers in the 1970s. Mm. So is that what you mean when you say in the book that true anti-racist movements don't fragment class struggle, but radicalize it? Because this is something that I'm really interested in, in terms of, you know, in in the UK, at least, I think one of the main challenges that we come up against in anti-racist movement spaces, or, you know, movement spaces in general, is that thing that you just hit on, this idea that, you know, there is only class and that's the, you know, we all need to unite behind a kind of idea of all of us as the as, as the working class and things like race or trans rights or gender issues or whatever are a distraction. They're a fragmentation that we need to move away from and just all unite behind a kind of class struggle. Um, so I just, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Obviously, we're very, we're all very familiar with that way of thinking that says, you know, we just need to unite as a working class and any other kind of set of concerns is, is fragmenting of that of that unity right so the problem with that is precisely that it misses that racialization is also about material differences between different groups of people not just an ideological difference right so if there's material differences then the question arises if there were to be unity across the, these different groups it's not going to be achieved simply by us recognizing our true interests as working class people Right. That's not the way it's going to come across. It's going to come about by people with actually potentially different short term interests being persuaded that coming together for some shared struggle is going to be nevertheless in their interests. There isn't like a natural unity. It's a it's a unity that if it exists, it's going to have to be made. And in particular contexts, it may be that it's not the unity we need. You know, the historic example here would be the Black Power movement in the United States in the late 60s, early 1970s, quite rightly, in my view, says the unity we need is not the unity between us as a black working class movement and a white working class. The unity we need is between us as black people that are colonized within the United States and other colonized peoples around the world, right? So that's a kind of strategic question as to how what kinds of unity makes sense in a particular context, rather than one that can just be read off from a kind of orthodox analysis of class struggle or an orthodox analysis of how capitalism arranges classes. And we tend to have a highly impoverished idea of what the working class is in countries like Britain, because, you know, we have a certain cliche of what a worker looks like that derives from uh, several decades ago, if not from, you know, a century ago. And, you know, the working class is international. If you take seriously the idea that class struggle is going to overthrow capitalism, which I do, I do think in the end it is a class struggle that we need. But the question is, is like within that, what does the working class look like? And it looks very different from how it's usually understood in that kind of way of talking about class that we're very familiar with in Britain. Even in terms of British capitalism, the people that work and are exploited in order for British capitalism to profit are actually all around the world because Britain is still, to some extent, an imperialist power. So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is, again, the question of the surplus populations that I talked about before. So the kind of classic way of thinking about this is the idea from Marx of the reserve army of labor, right, where people who are unemployed, Marx writes about them as, as a kind of reserve group of workers who, in times of boom in the economy, can kind of be absorbed into the economy to meet labor needs. But then in terms of bust, when the economy contracts, they're kind of thrown on the scrap heap and kind of live in, in destitution until they can be reabsorbed again. And they provide a kind of, uh, you know, there's various ways in which the existence of that population is beneficial to capitalist profit making. Now, if you look at the world today, 
what you have is huge numbers of people who are never going to be absorbed into waged work in the model of what Marx was seeing in the 19th century. And so you have the never employed, not the unemployed, populations that are complete surplus and that eke out a living that never involves waged work, whether that's various kinds of hustling, various kinds of subsistence economy and so on, right? Are they part of the class struggle? I think we have to say they need to be because that's a huge section of the world's population. But they're not going to be carrying out a struggle in the ways that would be familiar from the kind of European history of class struggle, which center on, you know, the power to withdraw your labor in your workplace. I mean, that's just not. Capitalism has decided they're not even worth exploiting. And these are racialized groups, you know, like permanent unemployment in countries like Britain and the United States is racialized. And in terms of surplus populations around the world, these are the populations that are, you know, historic victims of colonialism and neocolonialism and these are the people that lose their lives in the millions trying to enter into you know europe or the united states and dying in in the seas and deserts that we use to block their entry you know these are the people that have been killed in their millions in the wars on terror and wars on drugs and so on these are the people that we warehouse in refugee camps and warehouse in prisons in the united states for me there's a class struggle there for those people they constitute a class of sorts, but they don't look anything like um, the picture of working class struggle that the European left tends to work with. Yeah, I mean, just to in terms of kind of grounding this a little bit, I guess, um, towards the end, for listeners who are kind of yeah engaged in anti-racist struggle in the UK and, you know, want to do exactly what you've been talking about, you know, really foreground a much more kind of structural systemic analysis in the work so in, in your experience of having kind of, yeah, I guess, done this work in, in movement spaces, what would your advice be? I think the first thing to say is, you know, Maurice Bishop, the leader of the Grenadian Revolution, used to say, uh, organisation is our greatest weapon. To be an anti-racist means being part of some kind of organisation involved in some kind of collective power build. You know, I think we have a lot of organisations that do studies and press releases and kind of lobbying and meetings with policymakers and so on but they don't have any kind of organized base. We need to actually have organization on the ground in affected communities as the first thing. Otherwise, otherwise we're never going to have the power to change anything, right? Because power comes from, from having a certain number of people. It doesn't have to be a huge number of people, but a certain number of people who are willing to put in time and energy into building something with other people and have a certain kind of commitment and a certain kind of loyalty to that cause. When we think about these big systems, you know, these big economic systems or state power and so on, all that is, is a, a certain number of people working together for some shared cause. Now, they do it because it pays them. I mean, by and large, that's the reason. What it is beyond that is essentially a routine set of people coming together with a shared interest to, and they're organized, right? We are not organized enough. That's our weakness. Our strength is, is that when we come together for a cause, we have knowledge from all of our experiences on the ground that means that we can understand what we're up against and transform it, uh, dismantle it, build new kinds of ways of being together. Where we direct that organizational power will vary from one context to the next. And it's not going to happen overnight, you know, I just talked about Maurice Bishop. Another thing he used to say is revolution is not instant coffee. It's going to take time. But there's all kinds of people in, in Britain who are doing work that I think is part of that process, whether it's the people who are doing direct action around 
UK-based companies that that support Israeli colonialism against Palestinians, or whether it's people who are trying to disrupt the workings of the immigration border system and disrupting deportation flights, whether it's people organizing with gig workers and cleaners and so on to build their power. You know, there's all kinds of ways that people are fighting. And what we need is actually more than anything, actually, we need a shared story now to be able to find ways to connect together all these different struggles as having a kind of resonance with each other and also then ways that those stories can connect with other people struggling in other parts of the world so that we can start to imagine that although I'm focused on this particular piece of these big structures, I know that I'm involved in a shared struggle with someone on the other side of the world or someone in another part of Britain working on a completely different issue, but I can see the connections. And that enables me to feel that we do have the power to change these things. We have seen huge transformations brought about by political struggle over the last 100 years. The transformation of the international system brought about by the anti-colonial movements of the mid-20th century, I mean, changed the entire map of the world and changed the whole international arrangement in ways that would have been hard to imagine just a few decades before. And we're going to need something very similar to that now as we enter this period where climate crisis you know, it's going to basically present a whole set of challenges around can we imagine human solidarity in facing that or are we going to retreat into little armed lifeboats where we think that we can save ourselves by keeping everyone else out, which isn't going to work. You know, we're going to need that kind of dramatic transformation that we saw with the anti-colonial movement of the middle of the last century. We've done it before. Understanding that history and understanding our struggles from the past, we can see how to do it. But we do need to start with organising at the grassroots. Lovely listener. That feels like it's as good a place to start and end as any. Wow, that's probably the most partridge sign-off I've ever done. Um, Aaron Kundnani, <laughs> thank you so much for, for being being with me. Um, Thanks, Aisha. <laughs> thank you. Um, if people want to find out more about your work or read your book, plug it. Tell us how they can uh, get more access to your brilliant ideas. Well, the book is published by Verso Books, so the, the best way to order it is probably directly from their website. And I think right now there's 20% off if you order the hardback. And I'm on Twitter and my handle is just my first name and then my last name. So that's A-R-U-N-K-U-N-D-N-A-N-I. Lovely. Uh, Thanks so much for that rich and hearty discussion. I feel like there's going to be tons for listeners to take away and for me too. Uh, So I really appreciate you being with us. That is it for today's new economics podcast and the end of the current series. Weep. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone, Margaret Welsh and Katrina Gaffney. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. <laughs>